Have you ever been to, to an important occasion, to a happy occasion that wound up being memorable, but for the wrong reasons? Like this morning, if someone decided to do a cannonball into the baptistry this morning, which we will not be doing. Stefan, where are you? Uh, uh, that would be memorable, but for the wrong reasons. Have you ever been, do you, do you remember a wedding because someone, someone fainted? Do you, or some extremely cringe-worthy best man speech or something like that. I would love to go around the room and share all of these stories, but for time's sake, I will just share one. Uh, communion services, they're important, they're good, they're commanded, but they're not entirely memorable, usually. Um, that's why we're told to regularly share communion, because Jesus said, as often as you do this, it helps you remember. But I remember exactly one communion service. When I was growing up, the first Christian church of Beloit, Kansas, it was sometime in the late 1980s. It was summertime, and I know that because one summer we had a problem with bats. And our, our sanctuary, our auditorium, was kind of a half-circle affair. It had a, so our communion table was in an octagon. It was kind of round, and, and the elders, there'd be two elders on kind of the pulpit side of the table, and they led through communion. It would be surrounded by deacons who would go in the different directions. And every Sunday we did communion. We did it every Sunday in that church. And we always, someone always would, would dim the lights to set the, you know, the preferred mood of solemnity. And for whatever reason, that one Sunday, when they dimmed those lights, it made that one little bat comfortable enough to start flying around. And his little bat brain, he was like, ooh, nighttime, this is me time. And he starts flying around, and I saw this little flit of movement, and this bat just, just landed right on the shoulder of one of our deacons. And that dude went like this, and, uh, and one of the elders who was not speaking, he took his handkerchief out of his pocket, grabbed that flying vermin, and just wrapped it up tight, stuck it in his pocket... And the elder who was speaking never broke stride. Like, he didn't even know it happened. It was all my brother Mark and I could do to keep from standing up and like, you, do you, we've got to celebrate what just happened here. It was the bravest thing I had ever seen in church. Um, memorable, but for the wrong reasons. Well, We've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, and here's where, here's where we're at. Israel has decided it needs a king, and it wants a king like all the other nations' kings, because really they've rejected God as their king. And God, like we've studied the last couple of weeks, when we pursue things that ultimately are like dumb and wrong, a lot of times God will give us what we ask for when we ask for what we shouldn't have. And that's what He's going to do with Israel. Last week, in the previous story, God made clear who the first king of Israel is going to be. It's a man named Saul. But where we pick up this morning, 
Samuel knows. Samuel is the prophet of Israel, the guy who gives his name to this book, and he's the judge. He's very old at this time. Samuel knows Saul is going to be the king, and Saul knows that Saul is going to be king. God made that very clear in the previous passage, but those are the only two guys that know when our story opens. And that's going to change today, because today Israel is going to have its first ever coronation ceremony, which should be a a joyous, magnificent occasion. Well, it's going to wind up being memorable, but for the wrong reasons. Let's read our passage first. This is 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is the New American Standard Bible. It's on the screen and under a, a chair in front of you if you want to find that and keep it in your lap. That'd be great. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, read this way. Thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Verse 20. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they looked for Saul, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage or in the equipment. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people of the ordinances of the kingdom. And he wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with Saul. But certain worthless men said, how can this guy deliver us? And they despised Saul and did not bring him any gift, but Saul kept silent. There's our passage for today, and I probably should start the the body of this uh, study with a full disclosure that I've never actually seen a a coronation ceremony. Um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II hers hers was in 1953. She has been at that a long time. Maybe if Prince Charles outlives her, I'll catch some of. Of his, but so I've never actually seen a coronation ceremony, but I'm pretty sure this one's unusual. I don't have much to compare it to, but this one doesn't seem like it is normal. It doesn't start the way one would probably start. I mean, Samuel's opening statements 
have to be abnormal as far as opening statements for a coronation ceremony go. Here's what I mean. Samuel gets everybody together at, uh, at Mizpah, and here's his opening statements. Here's what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from all these nations that oppress you, and you are rejecting me. Now, everybody, take your places. Let's start the coronation. What? Talk about a mood killer, right? So much for this being a joyous occasion. What's going on with starting this ceremony this way? Well, don't miss first where Samuel decides to have this ceremony at. At this point, Israel has no capital. There aren't even Israelites living in Jerusalem. Um, They don't have control over that city. There's no capital. Samuel could have this anywhere he wants, and he chooses a place called Mizpah. And we've seen that city before in 1 Samuel. If you were here, you might remember Samuel got all of Israel together at Mizpah, and they had a ceremony there of repentance. That was the place where Israel corporately decided We've been depending upon the wrong things. We've been pursuing the wrong things. And together, Israel changed directions as a nation and decided to pour their hearts out to God and trust in Him alone. It's where they had a water ceremony like we're going to have today that was a public display of the private decisions they had made to get rid of all their idols Pursue God alone. Well, now the people are rejecting God. The people don't want to depend on God to save them anymore. They want a king they can see, leading an army they can see, so they can fight battles the way the rest of the world fights battles. And by having this take place at Mizpah, Samuel, this is his last-ditch effort to confront them with their bad decision in hopes maybe someone will come to their senses, but the people will have none of it. And for that reason, I think Samuel's lack of sort of politeness, decorum, civility is warranted. Sometimes we need to be confronted with the dumb decisions We're making. So Samuel reminds the people, it's God who delivers you from your real problems. More on this later, but one of Israel's big problems is they want delivered from something God doesn't want to deliver them from. You know what Israel wants delivered from? They want to be delivered from being different from all the rest of the nations. They want to be like the rest of the nations. God has always wanted His people to be different. So they're asking for deliverance from something God doesn't want them delivered from. Well, the people won't uh, change their mind. And God, as we've said, God often gives us what we ask for when we pursue stuff we shouldn't have. So So Samuel gets on with it. And in... Verses 20 and 21, something unusual happens. The king is chosen by lot, by by the casting of of lots. It's something like a lottery system. We don't know what 
ancient casting of lots looked like. We read of it throughout the Bible. Just know whenever you read it, it's a way to choose stuff sort of at random, like drawing names out of a hat, like drawing straws, like flipping coins, right? Rolling dice. And under certain circumstances, God was okay with Israel casting lots to decide things, but it sure does seem like a weird way to pick a king, right? Uh, they just as well have all gotten together and put their fists in and had Samuel go, bubblegum, bubblegum, in a dish. How many? Do you remember that one? Anybody ever do that one? And you are king, right? Seems like a good way to pick someone to be it in freeze tag and a lousy way to pick someone to be king. But why did they need this at all? If you were here last week or if you've read the previous story, God already chose the king, right? And Samuel knows who the king's going to be, and Saul knows. It's him. So why, why the lottery system? Why the lots? Well, this is God's way to reinforce publicly the decision he's made privately. What God does here, God doesn't want six months from this day, two years from this day, God doesn't want anybody to ever say, you know, Samuel said Saul was God's choice, but how do we really, how do we really know? You know Samuel never lied. He always, what, everything he said was true. But how do the people know that? So God, you know, that is one of the weaknesses with prophecy, by the way. When you hear someone that has, says they have gotten a word from God, how do we know? That's why we're so, we are so blessed to have this. Because we don't have to guess about whether or not this is from God. So God, just in His grace, what He does is He assume, presumably directs Samuel to get together and say, hey, uh, however they, the system of drawing lots was, out of the 12 tribes of Israel, Cast lots to see what tribe is picked. Well, it's Benjamin. That's Saul's tribe. And then his sort of clan, Saul's tribe, at random, gets picked. And then out of all the people in his clan or family, I'll be darned, Saul's name gets, gets chosen. God superimposes his will onto that process so that now there can be no question that Saul was the the guy that was chosen. So now we're ready to crown the king. There's just one little problem if you paid attention as we read the story. No one can find him. He's not there. And this scene, verses, the last part of verse 21 through 24, is like the scene from a, from a comedy. Uh, they choose Saul, and then it's just like, Saul? Saul? Anybody seen Saul? And now picture this. This is a nation of people who've decided they don't need God. Right? We just want to be like the rest of the nations. Except they can't even find the king they've got without God's help. Do you see that? They have to ask God, hey, would somebody, like Samuel, would you ask God like where our king's at? They can't even find the guy without God's help. They inquire of God. Somehow God lets them know, presumably through Samuel, though we're not told that. 
Uh, he's hidden himself among, and there's a Hebrew word that means bag, baggage or equipment. They didn't have suitcases like, like we do, but he's just hiding among, amongst a bunch of stuff. God tells them where to find him. They go. Sure enough, he's there. They drag the big galoot out of there and stand him up. And my, isn't he a tall one? We're told again that he is the tallest Israelite. He's a, he's a head taller than all of the rest of the Israelites. By the way, giants are never pictured as part of the solution to Israel's problems. Okay? Not in this book and not in any other book in the Bible either. But he is... He's brought out, here he is, Samuel says something else that I find funny. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. Samuel says, do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? Indeed, there's no one like him among all the people. Ain't he, boy, isn't he a great specimen? The guy that was just hiding from his duty. I think he's dripping with sarcasm when he says that. I think what's probably most important about this, this little episode, though, is it becomes emblematic of Saul's whole reign as king. Because Saul, over and over, and if you keep coming back, we'll see this as we study through this book. One time after another, Saul will fail at executing the duties God gives him to do. Like Saul didn't want this job. I, I get that. But he was assigned this job. And he refused, tries to refuse it. That's going to become a theme moving forward. All the people, they are undeterred. I don't think they uh, recognize the sarcasm from, from Samuel the prophet. And they, they just start screaming out the Hebrew equivalent of long live the king. Like hooray for King Saul. And in the last three verses of this passage, we learn that, that God equipped Saul with everything Saul needed to be a successful king. Saul very well, like if this is the first time that we've read this story and we don't know what's coming, like Saul very well might wind up becoming a complete failure of a king. Spoiler alert, he will. But it's not because he wasn't given a fair shake by God. It's not because he wasn't given what he needed to be God's kind of success. And we're told this in these verses. In verse 25, uh, Samuel talked to the whole people about the previous translation said that the ordinances of the kingdom. This translation says, talk to the people about how the kingship would work or should work. And he writes it all down in a book before the Lord, just means publicly, like before God and everybody. We're not told what was, what was put in that book, but we have some pretty good ideas in the Bible. A few weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Clear back when Moses was around, God said someday Israel's going to want a king. Here's the only kind of king Israel should ever want. And God writes down what kind of king Israel should have. I assume that information is in the book. This is, becomes like the, like the procedure manual for being king of Israel. We've already been told last time the, way, the hierarchy of the way the king is supposed to operate. God is supposed to be the sovereign 
over Israel. Samuel, Saul, as king, is supposed to only do what God wants. Now, how is King Saul supposed to know what God wants? Well, two ways. First, Deuteronomy 17 says Saul himself is supposed to handwrite a copy of God's law. Maybe this book that, that Samuel put out that day had lots of extra space in it so that Saul could make his copy that God said he was supposed to make. And then Deuteronomy says the king is supposed to be under the law and under God. But Saul has even more than that. Saul's got Samuel. He's got like his own personal prophet, a real prophet, a true prophet. That God said his, Samuel's words will never fail. So he's got that going for him. And then... When Saul goes home to Gibeah, because again, there's no capital. The capital is just sort of wherever the king is, I guess. When Saul goes home to Gibeah, with him went some brave men or some valiant men, your Bible might say, whose hearts God had touched. Here's what's going on there. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is chayil. And that is a word used for the best Soldiers. Uh, we might say some of Israel's finest went with Saul. And something had to happen before they would go with Saul. Because think about this. Do the best and brightest and bravest and most valiant soldiers, do they usually want to follow someone who like five minutes ago was literally hiding from his duty, that's not the kind of guy Israel's finest would normally want to follow, right? So look what God does. God touches the hearts of these brave and valiant men so, so that they have suddenly, they have a desire to be loyal to Saul, to protect Saul, to be under Saul. So you know what Saul has now? Saul's got an army, or at least the officer corps for one. Because God has given them a heart to support Saul. So Saul's got the procedure manual. He's got the best system of law the earth has ever seen. He's got his own personal prophet who will tell him what God wants him to do. And he's got an extremely loyal officer corps from among the best men in Israel. Saul has what Saul needs to be God's kind of success in what God has called Saul to do. So if and when Saul messes this up, Saul won't have anyone to blame but Saul. Now, does all that mean... If Saul does the best he can, he won't have problems. He won't have struggles. No, there's already problems. Look how this chapter ends. But there are some wicked or some worthless men who are already, they don't like Saul. They don't support Saul. And they begin to ask what really is a pretty good question. How can this man save us? How can this guy deliver us? If you think about it, they just watched him get 
get drug out of his hiding place. And so they start to ask, seriously, this guy? This guy's going to save us? And from some, from one sense, the answer to that question, how can this guy save us, is he can't. Because they want a king who's like the, every other king the world has. And he can't. But from another sense, and we'll see this next week, if Saul will be the kind of king God wants him to be, God can use Saul to save Israel. You know, if, just as people, if we accept where God has placed us and what God has given us as being enough and what I need, and my job is to be faithful where He put me toward what He has given me, we can be God's kind of success no matter who around rejects us or hates us. And that's our passage this morning. What do we learn from this 3,000-year-old passage about a a hide-and-seek coronation? Well, lots. I want to leave you with two things today, though. First, this passage reminds us it is really important to know the difference between those things that God has promised to deliver us from and those things God has not promised to deliver us from. See, Israel, they had this problem. They wanted delivered from something God hasn't promised to deliver them from. Right? We don't want to be different from the rest of the nations of the world. So, if God won't deliver us from that, well then, I guess we have to be done with God. How easy is it to get there? Sometimes we want to be delivered from stuff God doesn't want us delivered from. We want delivered sometimes from being lonely. I want to be with someone else. Sometimes we want delivered from, uh, from difficulties, from trials, from illness. Sometimes we want delivered from a a bad financial situation. We could do this all day. It's really important to understand the things God has promised to deliver us from and those He has not. Because it's super easy to sort of be mad at God for not delivering on promises that God never made. God, if you were real, I wouldn't have fill in the blank. I wouldn't be in fill in the blank. Did God really promise to deliver me from what I'm really angry at Him about? On the other hand, God has promised to deliver us from the most important things we can be delivered from. God has promised to deliver us from the penalty, the eternal penalty our sins actually do deserve. And he he accomplished that because he refused to deliver his son from the punishment our sins deserve. God is honest. He's just. He doesn't lie. And he promised 
all sins will cost separation from him, death. Jesus was separated from his father at the cross. Jesus was was brutally executed. And for those who believe in him, God promises, if we will believe in Jesus Christ, he will deliver us from the punishment our sins deserve. He promised to deliver us, if we believe in Jesus, from him. Because it is the wrath of God that will be pointed at sin. And it can either be pointed at him there or at you and I at the end of our lives. That is our choice. Then God promises to deliver us from hopelessness. I may be lonely, I may be hurting, but if I have Christ, I am not hopeless. He delivers us from purposelessness. He delivers us from the most important things, even when they're not everything we would choose. Like Saul wanted delivered from this job, didn't he? God wouldn't deliver him from the position he was put in. The second thing I want to emphasize anyway that this passage teaches is that just like Saul, God has equipped us with what we need to be God's kind of success. It is oh so easy to look at what I don't have, what I haven't been given, uh, who has hurt me, what has happened to me in my past, and convince myself, and I just have to throw my hands up, God it hasn't been good enough to me, I don't have what it takes or what I need. God has equipped. He will always equip His people to be His kind of success where he has put us. Now, his kind of success is important because a lot of times we want the kind of success the rest of the people of the world seem to be enjoying. We want to be impressive. We want to be rich. We want to be famous. We want to have a beautiful, long, flowing head of hair. But maybe that's just me. But God's brand of success is glorifying Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, where He has put us with what He has given us. And He has equipped each of us. He has equipped each of us to do that well. And in fact, somehow it, it sticks out more, kind of the worse we've got it. If we're honest. Why don't you pray with me and we will celebrate some baptisms together. Father God, um, it is so easy for us to, to try and hold you accountable for things that you have never promised. In fact, the Lord Jesus promised us trial and tribulation and heartache and hardship in this world. So when those things touch our lives, we shouldn't be mad at you for failing to deliver us. God, help us to pull closer to Christ and be thankful for what you have delivered us from. Thankful that you will deliver us from the power of sin and in an eternity apart from you. And God, help us with that as our hope 
to strive to glorify you to be the kind of success you have given us. God, you haven't called us to be kings and queens of Israel, but you've called us to be to be mommies and to be daddies and to be spouses and to be friends and to be church members and to be members of a community. And you have given us what we need to make you look valuable in a dark and broken world. Thank you for that. Bless us with the the grace and the guts to work at being your kind of success. And thank you for delivering us from the penalty our sins deserve. We love you, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you uh, stand up, if you would, and uh, sing with us the last song. And again, if you are being baptized, you can make your way to the front couple rows up here.